This is Hard Reset, a series about rebuilding our world from scratch. Hello and welcome to the Hard Reset podcast. I'm Nick Tucker. I'm one of the co-creators of Hard Reset. And Hard Reset is a show that's all about how would we rebuild the world from scratch if we were starting over. And what we do is we go and film the people and the technologies that would make that possible. So I'm joined today by Rob Chapman-Smith. Hi, I'm the editor-in-chief of Freethink. And Toby Morishana. Hey, I'm the community manager at Freethink. This episode, we're going to talk all about OleoSponge, which is an episode we did where we went to Argonne National Labs and filmed with the researchers who have invented a, a substance that allows us to soak oil out of the water and clean up oil spills. So if you haven't seen it already, make sure you check the description below for a link and watch that episode. And make sure you like and subscribe. What I would like to talk about is the hard reset side of this. So one of the things that we often talked about with the show is like, what is this a hard reset for? And I'm curious, Rob, from your perspective, what do you sort of envision for this technology? We talk about problems that exist in the environment that we have created uh, as a byproduct of us needing energy and and whatnot. And you know, there's searing images in my mind of things like the BP oil spill right. and seemingly intractable problem to solve. I, I still think there's oil in the Gulf of Mexico from those types of things. I don't think we've ever really properly cleaned up oil spills well. This technology seems like magic when right. you look at that. And so for us to be able to still use oil, which we're going to have to use for a long period of time, to actually have something that can get oil out of water in a way that is not only complete, but also we can use it again. We're not wasting that resource. That resource doesn't go away. It's something that we could still uh, uh, reliably use. I mean, that is an, uh, a, a quite literally a magical use case. I do struggle a bit, and I'm curious what you think on how it's a hard reset and what right. it's a hard reset for. And I know in the episode, he talks about it as a hard reset for water, but I'm curious how you sort of articulate this technology as a hard reset. Yeah, it's interesting because in many ways, how can you hard reset something that we don't have already? <laughs> right. Right. And uh, we don't have a technology like this um, for cleaning up these large environmental disasters. And so in that respect, it's hard for it to be a hard reset. Um, it is a bit of a hard reset for a lot of other things, though, where it allows us to really rethink materials and material mm -hmm. science. This idea of atomic layer deposition uh, and using thin film coatings to change um, how materials interact with the world around them is really, really fundamentally different from a lot of other material sciences that we've had in the past. So it's it's definitely allows us to rethink a lot of those things. But I would agree that in many ways it can't be a hard reset because it's not like there was an oil spill sponge that it's replacing. Right. There is no, there was, uh, it, it is a hard reset for how we clean up oil spills, which is a very specific thing that is unfortunately very common. Mm -hmm. um, and as they point out in the video, we basically just set this on fire. When there's an oil slick, they just burn it. They just, well, it's, it it's just fire and it burns away and, and now you breathe it instead of having to get all over your fish and your ducks. So in that respect, it's a very direct hard reset for how we would clean up an oil spill. And unfortunately, that's not that niche. That is a serious widespread problem that we have to deal with because oil spills happen all the time. So I think it depends on how you look at it in a way. On the one hand, you can look at it as sort of like an incrementally approved approach. You know, we have an approach that we have been using, uh, and we're improving it. On the other hand, the idea of just like erasing a category of disaster off right. of human consciousness feels like a hard reset. That's right. fair. And 
to your point, and a, a bunch of people mentioned this in the comments too, is that there's potentially other things this could be used for. So, you know, the technology is depositing a one atom thick layer of some specifically designed uh, molecule on top of a substance so that it can suck something out of water. There's other things that we might need to suck out of water. Um, you know, someone in the comments mentioned, for example, fats that get flushed down the drain and end up in these, creating these fatbergs. You might have seen these viral photos of these massive hunks of just, you know, lard or lipids that get stuck in sewer systems in like London and stuff. And so that's potentially something that you could address, maybe. I don't know. I'm not a scientist, but <laughs> that's the potential for it, right? Or there's natural oil spills. So, you know, there's natural seepage of oil into the Gulf of Mexico. That's another oh. thing that people brought up. Um, and so potentially you have something like that where that could not just react to our man-made disasters, but, you know, proactively protect vulnerable ecosystems and things like that. There's so many different things you can use to clean this, to, to use this to clean up. Um, I grew up in a very rural area where there's a lot of mining during the gold rush. And mm. so there's a lot of groundwater contamination from old mining techniques where they were using things like, I think, arsenic to filter out gold during these, the, the, the gold refining process. And that is now in the groundwater. So can you create a, an atomic layer deposition layer that binds to arsenic? Can you create um, all sorts of different filters, essentially, so you can really purify water in a way that we've never really been able to do before? Uh, if you can identify a particular type of contamination, can you custom design a surface that will bind to it so you can start to um, you know, create uh, just bespoke filtration systems for different types of disasters. And the ultimate promise is now we'll finally we'll be able to spill all the oil we want. <laughs> <laughs> that is the dream. Yeah. Yeah, Guilt-free oil spills? Guilt-free <laughs> oil spills. Spill all the oil. To push back a little bit on what you said earlier, I don't think we can quite erase this as a category of disaster. Mm -hmm. Because even, even if we have this technology at scale, there will still be impact from these sorts of disasters. But if we could mitigate them by half, mm -hmm. by 80 percent, you know, 70 percent, like those are massive improvements uh, that would save tons of life and have a huge uh, impact on the environment. And one thing to be fair is that oil spills have, although they still happen a lot, have been reduced tremendously already right. Right. Uh, from what they were in the you know, 60s, 70s, and stuff like that. Yeah. So we haven't made progress on them before, and it's cool to know that progress is still possible. The scenario that you laid out where we're taking, we're doing different sort of atom layers on tops of these materials and we're addressing other types of, of natural disasters or man-made disasters that happen, I'm curious what needs to happen in order for them to get there, right? They can barely make enough of these <laughs> sponges right now, like one-inch cubes, but do they have the technology and know-how to, to figure out the binding for some other things? Yeah, so what I think is really exciting about this as a technology is they, th the binding process they've developed is actually two layers. Okay. So polyurethane won't necessarily bind with this outer layer, but essentially they, they cover it with one layer of atoms, which is basically like the sticky side of Velcro, and then they have another one that binds specifically to it. And that second layer could be anything, as long as it's, uh, it, it's a silane of some sort. With silanes, there's a huge variety of different configurations. You can design these molecules so that they bind with all sorts of different uh, atoms. So the sky really is the limit for that. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of potential there. I don't know how simple it is. I wouldn't want to speak to that. But I do know that there's a tremendous amount of potential for these folks to synthesize different types of silanes that can bind to all kinds of materials. 
One of the things I think about with episodes like this, and you make a joke at the end of the episode about like, oh, if only there was an, an industry indi- with lots of money and power and a global logistics network that might contribute to oil spills in some way. Oh, uh, well, seems unlikely. I do wonder slightly about like a regulatory It's a pipe. So how do you add these teeny tiny layers? Well, in this teeny tiny reactor. It's real small. Like a pipe. It's a pipe. They call it a reactor, and I'm thinking like, oh, I'm going to walk into this like huge room, and there's going to be like <laughs> pipes jutting out of this giant thing. And it's like, no, it's this. This pipe you can hold in your hand. It's a tiny little pipe. It's a very complicated arrangement of pipes that kind of push atomic layers of things onto this thing. But it all happens in a pretty small chamber. So they have some larger uh, reactors that do similar things. The question is, can you make one the size of this room? Can you make one the size of you know, a house so right. that you can push tons of this material through in a conveyor style uh, and, and just make the stuff in mass? That's the real limiting factor, is building that style of reactor. And that's an investment of hundreds of millions of dollars, probably. And that's, you know, it's a huge CapEx expenditure if you're going to look at, at in starting a business to make this. Once you can kind of cross that threshold, you have a platform for technology that's really pretty flexible. You can, like, design a silane to soak up arsenic, oil, or whatever else. As, you, as long as you can find a compound that will bind to it, you could start to design technologies around this atomic layer deposition that will allow you to, to clean those out of the environment. So that's the real thing. Is like once they cross that threshold of being able to invest in these kinds of reactors, you have a huge opportunity to make different products. Yeah, I guess one of the things I find frustrating about this episode, and it doesn't have to do with the episode, but it's just like, you know, it's hundreds of millions of dollars. doesn't seem like a lot of money. Like, well, maybe not to you. <laughs> no, the editor in chief. Yeah. <laughs> but like, how much money did we waste on the F-35 jet? And, and so in comparison to some other places where we spend like, insane amounts of money, it seems like there would be an obvious incentive to want to do this. Right. I'm curious in an unvarnished moment, or if you even have an answer uh, from our, our subjects about this, like why do they think they haven't gotten that investment when it's like so visually obvious that this is a, cool, a good and interesting thing to do? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question because I think a lot of what Argonne does, they, they, they will develop these technologies up to a point, but they really do require the private sector right. to take those technologies to market. And the private sector is looking at this and thinking, 
how much money can I make from it? Right. And that's a great question to ask because I, I got the importance of profits and the importance of, of tracking how value is added or taken away through these processes. Yes, profits are good things. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, but uh, I also look at this and see the social good side of it. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of corporations are willing to invest the hundreds of million dollars with weighting that social good the same way I would because I'm not investing hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> well, on the other hand, um, these companies that are are accidentally spilling oil here and there. They are paying exorbitant <laughs> amounts of here and there, you know, you like know, you do. As one does. But like they're, they're paying lawsuits, right? right? They're paying lawyers, they're paying insurance companies. It's not like this is, you know, a, not a value proposition to them. Right. So that's what surprised me. I was like, they're already, this is already a question of hundreds of millions of dollars for them. You know, and it, we got a lot of comments that were like, oh, the government should just find them or yeah. regulate them, which, you know, fair enough. But I'm like, I'm surprised even that would be necessary if this works as well as it is. I mean, it seems like it would be a no-brainer for all parties involved. But yeah, I mean, yeah. technology is a stubborn thing. Sometimes there's other issues that, you know, aren't easily conveyed in common conversation, but technical reasons why these things can't scale as well as you might hope. I think, to me, it's a no-brainer. If I had the money to, to, to build a facility like this, would I, do I think it would be a good investment? Over the long term. I just don't know how long that term is. Mm -hmm. I think you could make money back from soaking up oil from oil spills. Unfortunately, that happens fairly frequently, right? So you'd be able to make some money back and pay for your investment, just on a pure uh, speculative basis. How long would it take you to pay a vacuum back? 20 years, 50, 100, hopefully longer if we spill less and less oil, right? Um, so that's not a huge winning business argument. Could you use this as a platform to do thin layer uh, coatings on all sorts of other types of materials to give them all sorts of different properties? That, I think, is where the profit mark, like starts to pick up. That Yeah, I can make the oleo sponge in mass, but I can also do things like make waterproof cars that don't, you know, or, or, or you know, apply thin films to larger and more complex objects to give them additional properties. And maybe that's where that additional profit motive can come to justify the creation of these large reactors. The other thing I, I sort of think about is in like household cleaning supplies. Yeah. Areas, right. Like, and what sort of thin layers you can apply to those and turn that into like something that's way more profitable right. on a margin scale. I don't know what that would be as we were talking about like other types of uh, places where you could use this. I was like, well, I mean, people are spilling oils in their kitchen all the time. Yeah. And that is a pain to clean up those types of things. And a sponge that's like a specific oil sponge would be nice if yeah. I like drop a bottle of olive oil and I got to clean that stuff up. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think you could, I mean, th what I find really exciting about thin film coatings <laughs> which is not a sentence <laughs> that I think I would ever foresaw myself saying until just, just now. Uh, that's one of those moments, like when you walk out of Costco with like a pair of Kirkland shoes, you're like, uh, I didn't ever see myself doing this, but here I am. <laughs> yeah, the thing I find exciting about thin film coatings is, is how you can take one material and make it act like a totally different material with very little additional, you know, a material applied to it, where you can take like a something like polyurethane foam and apply this tiny, tiny, tiny layer of this other molecule to it, and suddenly it, it acts like a totally different material. Yeah, that's kind of magical. It's basically alchemy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm yeah. just gonna say it. Bill Gates promised an enormous amount of money to whoever could invent an effective thinner condom. 
The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is offering $100,000 grants to revolutionize the world of condoms. Hmm. Like a thin film condom? Yeah, like a, if one a atom spray on and can get thinner than that. <laughs> it, uh, there's a joke about how big that reactor is. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sorry. <laughs> Just going to let it live in the imagination of our, of our six viewers. Um, so, <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I think there are all sorts of interesting philanthropic endeavors here. I mean, is there an X prize for cleaning up the environment where right. this could start to gain traction? Is there a, a way for us to raise this capital to clean the environment? And, and, and if so, why haven't we done it yet? And I, 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 I share your frustrations about this. And that was definitely one of the things we kept trying to get. I was like, when are we going to be able to do this? And they're like, ah, when someone wants to actually put the money in. Right. And, you know, the, the problem with a lot of environmental problems is their distributed cost. And uh, we all sort of have the suffer from them. We all see that. And, but a lot of it's out of sight and we don't suffer very much from it. And so there's just not the same level of impetus to get those solved. So what you were saying was making me think, though, like, you know, there's household applications of oil spill cleanups. There's also a lot of household and commercial applications of just filters, right? Mm -hmm. Like people, um, you know, want to filter impurities from coffee or alcohol or, you know, wine or, um, you know, you want to clean up paint or something like that. Like there's so many everyday applications of it. It seems like, you know, the, how many types of sponges have already come on the market, right? <laughs> you know? For sure. So I, I'm wondering if it, in my mind, I'm like, maybe there's a gotcha that I have, we haven't identified or maybe, you know, it's just a matter of time and these things don't happen overnight. Sometimes they take a decade or yeah. whatever, you know? All right. Well, the reason why I thought about like household stuff is the mo I think the most successful Shark Tank product is a sponge. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it was, it like blew away all of the sharks and all that type of stuff. I forget the one. It's like the one with this face on it or whatever. Scrub Daddy. <laughs> the Scrub Daddy sponge on Shark, oh, have, <laughs> on, on shark Tank. It's the most successful it. shark it's a good tank product. And this feels kind of Scrub Daddy-ish in right. some type of way. And uh, in the way... <laughs> I'm just saying, guys, if you guys want to go pitch this on Shark Tank, I'm there. <laughs> I mean, can we? Yeah. We can. <laughs> Approved. Oh, what are you doing this evening? There, there are technologies on, on that we that you guys profile on on Hard Reset where it doesn't feel as obvious, right? And this is one where it's just it's so obvious that it's painful. Yeah. And 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 you know us, we're not business people per se. We're not scientists or inventors. And yet we're coming up with a bunch of different solutions that feel kind of practical unless some scientist comes and says, no, this is actually the, the physics or chemical uh, chemistry that's stopping us from doing that. But it, it, it's just mind numbing to like, how have we not figured this out? Y'all are super smart. Yeah. And I mean, I, it seems like if you are the person at an, a large oil company who might be able to invest in this. You've got to think, like, look at the goodwill this would get us. Through the roof. Why, why wouldn't you want to invest in this? So I'm a little baffled by why this hasn't gotten the traction it really deserves, because it is an incredible technology. And there's just so many reasons for it to start taking off. I guess another aspect of this that I'm, I'm curious about in terms of what they're doing to try to, like, prove this thing out more to make it 
more obvious to uh, some potential investor to invest in this. You know, you, you, we talked about the facility in New Jersey where they were able to do the testing, mm -hmm. but it seemed like that was the only facility where they could do that type of testing. Did you guys, did you talk with them at all about like, well, why is there only that one facility? Why don't we have more of these? Right. Well, I mean, it's a huge and expensive facility to build where to have this giant saltwater tank where you can bring in ocean water and spill oil into it and so you, without contaminating the environment. It's, it's massive infrastructure. So there's just not that many of those sorts of spaces around. Um, and this is the only one that's dedicated to that purpose. There are other ways to test this, however, and they, they definitely did a lot of that. So um, one of the things that I don't think a lot of people know is that oil spills aren't all man-made. Like there are natural oil seeps in the ocean all over the place where oil's bubbling up and seeping into the, the water column. And so one of the places where this happens is actually here off the California coast near Santa Barbara. And they tested this in the water column there where this happened, where there is a natural oil seep and it works very effectively at pulling oil out of the water column there. So um, they've definitely validated this in a number of different use cases, both cleaning it off the surface, cleaning it from the water column, which is, if you're not familiar with termite, everything basically from the floor to the surface of the ocean is the water column. Um, most oil cleanup technologies are just for cleaning the very two-dimensional surface on the top, which is where oil tends to pool. But a lot of it starts to drip down and the heavier uh, forms of it start to drip down. Uh, and there's not a lot of, there's no tech, other technologies really that can effectively clean the water column. So they've definitely validated it in a number of different use cases um, and conditions. But yeah, you would think we would have more of that, but there just isn't. Because it's, it's not cheap. It's a, it's a huge, expensive thing. So. so we had one or two other questions that I actually had as well. Uh, <laughs> came up in the, com in the comments. But one thing was, uh, what about hair? Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you've heard of this, but the sort of really exciting breakthrough oil spill cleanup technology I'd heard of from years ago mm -hmm. was just like hair apparently is really great at cleaning up oil. Again, probably doesn't scale as much as <laughs> you can't sweep there every barbershop. <laughs> but like, you know, I'm, I'm just curious about like more biological solutions or, yeah. or, or things like that. Maybe you could get, I don't know, yeah. wool or something. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, so hair is definitely one of the things that's used. Um, it's extremely hard to get compared to some of these. It's just very scarce. Mm -hmm. um, there are 8 billion of us, to your, to your point, but are 8 billion of us at once going to send a handful of our hair to the Gulf Coast of Louisiana to clean up an oil spill? Right. Um, by and large, getting your hands on hair, human hair, is, <laughs> again, a sentence I thought I would never <laughs> say, is pretty difficult. Uh, and there's a price for it. It's a commodity, just like anything else. And yeah. if you've looked at ever like donating your hair, mm -hmm. um, which a lot of people do for like human hair wigs and things like that for cancer patients, the price for hair is expensive. Mm -hmm. So using something like that that's very valuable to uh, clean up these oil spills seems very unfeasible and hard to scale, especially when something like polyurethane is so cheap to make and scale. I'm just imagining seeing an oil spill and like smashing the window of a wig shop. <laughs> just like... <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I need something curlier. Damn it. <laughs> So one of the things they're talking about with this is the level to which the sponge is oleophilic and hydrophobic. Right. Mm -hmm. And hair soaks up water really well. Oh, that's yeah, a, that's a... Mm. So um, this isn't just that it's oleophilic, it's that the, the water sheds out of it. Like when you pull that sponge out of a, a little cup of water full of oil, the water falls right off of it. 
and it's not until you squeeze it that the oil comes out. So the oil is really clinging to it. The water is like trying to get off of it as fast as it can. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge difference between the way this material reacts to water and the way human hair does. Like your hair will soak up water just as well as it will oil. The other aspect of it is the reusability. Right. That this sponge can just be wrung out and used again and again and again ad infinitum, essentially. So um, no other so like soaking up solution seems to have that property. Um, they tend to wear out pretty quickly. Whereas this, because it's polyurethane foam, I mean, you can get up and sit down on this chair, which is probably full of polyurethane foam, about a billion times before it starts <laughs> to break down because it just it lasts forever. And by and large, also hair, when it's used, tends to be kind of sewn together into these long tubes and then floated across the surface mm -hmm. uh, to clean up oil. But they, they don't seem to have a solution for cleaning it up under the water column at all. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this old technology is really the only water column cleanup technology that's been shown to be feasible. So, so yeah, hair is not a bad solution. It's just not a scalable solution. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious what the audience thought about this video, about this technology, and what were some of their questions or comments? Well, I think the biggest sentiment was, why are we trying to make oil a little bit better instead of just not using oil anymore? Yeah, I mean, I think admirable in some respects. I mean, it, hard reset, right? We should mm -hmm. be able to start from scratch. Um, but even within the show, we try to isolate things of like a fairly narrow thing that we're resetting. And I, mm -hmm. I, I think it's unrealistic to expect that we'd be able to turn off oil production and, and our dependence on fossil fuels so quickly. Mm -hmm. While I agree with the sentiment, it would be great to not have to rely on fossil fuels. I would love to move past that. I don't see that happening that quickly. I think it's going to take a long time for that to happen. We need new energy sources. We need new material sciences. We need all sorts of things to replace what, you know, fossil fuels have given us basically, you know, almost as an accident, as a byproduct of, of just being a good energy source. Yeah. Fossil fuels have changed human civilization, just like point blank period. And yeah. you, you wouldn't have the modern world without fossil fuels, and we haven't found anything to replace it yet. And we're, there's technologies that would be promising, like nuclear energy, but we haven't built nuclear reactors to the scale that we need to, and that also has problems as well. Um, and even things like solar and all the renewables that we're looking at, they still don't come close to what we're able to get with fossil fuels like oil. And so, yeah, it would be nice for us to fig to not use this thing, but we also have to deal with the fact that we're going to have to use these things for probably the rest of my lifetime. And if I had children, the rest of their lifetime, right. we're, we're going to be using oil in some type of way. And oil and other fossil fuels are used in other products as well. So we're, even if we weren't using them for energy, we'd still be using them for other things. So I think it's a little bit of a fantasy to think that we can just like flip a switch right. on these things. And insofar that we can prevent the damage that happens from our byproducts of using these things, and still get to use the energy, which is the thing we want in the first place. Right. Like, why would we not do that? Yeah, I mean, I've noticed a trend in the comments uh, when we talk about fossil fuel energy or other uh, sort of adjacent technologies that there tends to be the people who are like, well, why would we even have this? 
or the opposite end of like, well, why would you want solar when fossil fuels can do, you know, it's so great and you just <laughs> never be able to do that. And it feels like there's an interesting dichotomy there. And I want to make it clear, like we understand, <laughs> we understand that it would be great to not have to use these things. And we understand how amazing fossil fuels are. Yeah. Like they do amazing things. You can't, you cannot look around a room and, and, not see a dozen things that were either contained directly or impacted directly by a fossil fuel energy economy, like almost everything you touch. Mm -hmm. So I, I agree they've done amazing and wonderful things. So, and I agree that it would be great to not have to rely on fossil fuels. It's just, we're not there yet. I'm a little bit more bullish on, I think that we could, and I hope at least within my lifetime, within my kid's lifetime, because I think the technology is there to create equivalent amounts of it if we allow ourselves to do it. To me, it's mostly a political problem where it's like, when we say, why don't we just stop using fossil fuels? It's like, there is no switch, you know? Right. I, I don't have a magic wand where all of a sudden the you know multi-trillion dollar fossil fuel industry with all the people, all the machinery, all of the things that depend on it suddenly disappear and get converted to solar or something like that. Right. And let alone, you know, the legal, you know, uh, frameworks for that and stuff like that. Um, at the same time, yeah, I do think people really underappreciate how much fossil fuels influence the way the world you live in is the way it is. Anything that you see that is not the way it naturally occurs in the ground <laughs> was made that way through the use of energy. Right. And overwhelmingly, that's fossil fuels. Right. You know, and again, like plastics, like this laptop, it's probably you could trace a, a good percentage of it back to oil. Yeah. Um, you know, this mic stands and, you know, the factories that uh, are, are running to produce it and everything from the clothes that we wear to, you know, the computers we use, it's all mostly the result of someone burning some dinos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, one of the, I, th I think, sort of jokes we put into the voiceover is like, oh, you can take the sponge and wring it out and reuse that oil to make all the wonderful things we usually pollute our environment with, like plastic bottles and gasoline. Right. <laughs> I am joking, but also they are wonderful. Yeah. Like, plastic bottles are amazing. Mm -hmm. um, gasoline is amazing. Yeah. We're in a motorcycle garage right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I, I, are they pollutants? Absolutely. Yeah. Have they allowed us to do amazing things? Yes. Plastic is amazing. Yeah. If you're not impressed by what plastic has done to human society, you are not paying attention. Right. So I think there's, you know, we, we can't just say, well, it's bad, we shouldn't use it. Well, I think there's, there's a tendency amongst some folks who desire to see the world be different to let the nuance like escape their brain. Right. And they just, they just want to go for that version of the better world. And they're almost like sort of solipsistic in the way that they yeah. uh, go for those approaches. And I think one of the, the good things about this episode and Hard Reset as a show in general is that it's not trying to do that, even though it's trying to rebuild the world from scratch. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, the first thing you figure out when you start talking about how do we rebuild the world from scratch is that there's so many interesting, wonderful, intelligent things built into the, the way things are that you may not have appreciated otherwise. Right. It's a great framework for discovering what some of those are. And some of them are nonsense and can be discarded. Mm -hmm. But by and large, like things that sort of are built up over time are condensing a lot of human knowledge that we don't typically have the chance to appreciate.
what were some of the questions that you guys had that we didn't have a chance to answer? Was there anything else that you wanted us to go deeper into this episode or explore more fully? Earlier in this episode, mm-hmm. we talked about like how adaptable is this to other sorts of substances? You know, um, is this something where they just make a swap and all of a sudden they can pull out something else, or is that you know a whole huge technical undertaking of one form or another? So yeah, when I talked to Seth and Jeff, who were two of the folks that we interviewed for this episode, one of the things they emphasized is that this this technology really can be a platform for different layers to be applied. And each of those layers could have a very different set of characteristics. So you could have sponges that soak up this or that or the other thing. It doesn't have to be a sponge either. This could be applied to any kind of surface that can accept a thin film coating. There's all sorts of different um, applications for this as we start to use it. And it's it's kind of exciting to think what we can do in terms of, you know, not just sponges, but filters or hard surfaces, any number of things that can really start to change the way our all of our products interact with the world. Yeah, I think in terms of the like what we went into the episode, it would have been fun to dig into the reactor, the pipe a little bit more and mm-hmm. just like have them explain, all right, this is what the bigger version of the pipe would look like and how it would work and how mm-hmm. it's different than the smaller version of the pipe. And this is the specific problem that we're trying to solve. Um, and it would still be interesting to know that because I'm sure there's, there's fascinating science behind all of that. Um, but the other thing, when you say platform, and I don't think we could have gotten to this in the episode uh, when we made it, but I wonder about doing it now. The word platform is an interesting word specifically because it can have so many different connotations and one of the ones that I uh, one of the things that it makes me think of almost almost immediately is open sourcing this technology right and then combining it with some of the crazy things we're seeing in like AI for example so people are using dolly for protein folding right and solving a whole bunch of medical stuff there well what could you apply that to creating the different materials that we could do and then if it's open source in some type of way if you build the reactor and it's almost like a a, you know there's these open like science benches where people can like rent a bench and then do experiments can you do the same thing with creating materials if you get the reactor to be big enough like how could you sort of use the open source energy and revolution to get past some of the capital problems because you're just doing it with in, interested people at scale right. and somebody else is paying for it, the server space. In this case, it would be the reactor space. Yeah. I don't know what type of, I, I, I'm, I just want to see this happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm curious like what other ways we could use to accelerate this and like how could you take the human interest that surely, surely exists right. for this. If you were to tell every human being on the planet, hey, there's a technology that can stop oil spills from happening. Uh, the overwhelming majority of them would have to say, oh, that's great. Why aren't we using it? And, and if you could also tell those people, you can contribute it to it by doing X, Y, and Z. I think a lot of those folks probably would totally. do that as well. And so like- Why isn't Mr. Beast on this shit? Actually, I was <laughs> thinking about that as a thing. Like uh, one of, the, one of the, the versions of the episode that I thought would have been really fun if it wasn't, I'm sure, exorbitantly expensive, would be like, how, what's the biggest version of this thing that we can do and do an experiment where right. we're like helping to like- get this thing out. Yeah, I mean, mean, when we have, how many subscribers does he have now? Uh, He has over 100 million. He has the most on YouTube. Okay, so when we get 100 million subscribers, (laughs) (laughs) tell your friends. We're going to go clean up some oceans. Uh, Because, no, but I mean, truly, like, and I think what's interesting about what he's doing is really changing the way we do philanthropy. Team Seas, Team Trees, these are really exciting ways in which he's gotten activated a community, his audience, to actually make a real tangible impact. And this is another potential sort of thing where you could do that, where you could say, hey, can we get 100 million people to fund the creation of this reactor to start cleaning up the ocean? 
Actually, that's not a bad idea. I'm just saying, Mr. Jimmy, Beast. if you're uh, watching this, which you probably aren't, but you know, seriously, help us save the oceans. <laughs> yeah. And like and subscribe. <laughs> so I don't think this is open source, yeah. but it is technology you can license. Mm -hmm. Now, Argonne is a really cool place. If you're not familiar with the National Laboratory System, it's super interesting. Mm -hmm. The way we've set up these amazing facilities to do really hard science, sort of isolated from the pressures of commercial science, right? There's not the immediate pressure to make a profit from these things right away, right. which is both awesome and a bit of a problem, which is sort of what we're up against here, right? right. But you can license these technologies. As they make these discoveries, um, they are made available to people who want to go and use them for a, a commercial purpose or otherwise. And so... I would highly recommend that people check out what the, their national laboratory that's near them is, is doing, see if you can take a tour. They're just amazing places that do amazing work. Um, it was really cool going to see what they're doing here. They have these amazing facilities to research all sorts of material stuff they're doing. We did we filmed three episodes on the facility there, one about oleo sponge and then two about different battery technologies. And I can't stress how much uh, I learned from going to these places and talking to the researchers who are really on the bleeding edge of all these technologies. So um, these technologies are really kind of one of our national resources. The same way our national parks are national resources, these are natural resources. We have an incredible amount of talent and intelligence in our country and in every other country too. But the national labs are really set up to channel that into these creative purposes that I think are really, really potentially transformative. The last question I have is, uh, what were the meanest comments we got? I really uh, want to hear kind of like what the, the snarkiest stuff was out there. Well, we had Martin Brecknock saying, this would be improved if you dropped the cool kid wannabe humor, just a thought. Oh. <laughs> to, be, to be totally transparent, I don't want to be a cool kid. <laughs> <laughs> I would say mostly very positive on the humor, like all, across all of our series. But People once don't in like a while, the Superman 3 joke? What's wrong with you guys? <laughs> Mao Zedong. I don't think the real one. Probably. Not verified. Right. <laughs> Not verified. <laughs> Said, heard about surf, uh, surfactants. Yeah, that's because it's cheaper and works well. So surfactants is something they talk about. Mm -hmm. um, it is cheaper, for sure. It does work well at taking the oil off of the surface, <laughs> but it often just dissolves it down into the water column. So it becomes less visible, but it's still very much a pollutant. And so then it becomes a problem for everything that lives in that water. Mm. So I wouldn't say it works better. I would say it works better at hiding the problem from the surface. Gotcha. All right, take that now. <laughs> um, uh, let's see, we have... Vince with Sham Wow. Hi, it's Vince with Sham Wow. You'll be saying wow every time you use this towel. It's like a chamois, it's like a towel, it's like a sponge. You can't have not, not have a Sham Wow reference <laughs> in this episode. We're talking I mean, about they're miracles. They're not wrong. Yeah. Uh, or, or the, uh, what was the, uh, the scrub one? The scrub Daddy. The scrub Daddy. Scrub Daddy, Sham Wow, Oleo Sponge. The holy trinity of magical sponges. <laughs> and oh, Magic Eraser. I guess it's a quadrilogy. We have, uh, the problem is just vapor de deposition is an expensive process. It doesn't scale well. I have a problem where sometimes I get YouTube comments and I have no idea whether this is an actual scientist who knows way more than me or just an idiot who knows way less than me. Right. <laughs> I yeah, no I mean, vapor deposition is a bit expensive. I don't think it's that it can't scale. There's a lot of thin film coding technologies that can scale. Mm -hmm. uh, is it, it's not free, that's for sure. It definitely is an expense, but at scale, 
the cost of these to manufacture wouldn't be significantly more than just manufacturing the polyurethane itself. Mm-hmm. So you might double the cost of the polyurethane, which is still cheap as yeah, hell. <laughs> well, thank you guys for watching another episode of the Hard Reset Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this. Please make sure you check out the original episode. Leave any comments you have for us about what other topics you'd like us to cover, or if you have further questions, we'll try and make sure we answer those. Uh, please also make sure you like and subscribe. And if you're a follower of Mr. Beast, make sure he gets on this so he can get <laughs> some of these oil-soaking sponges out into the ocean. Is it too much Mr. Beast reference? I don't Can you ever have enough Mr. Beast? Yeah, I mean, because like he actually does do crazy shit. You can't deny that. It's probably good for the algorithm just to mention him as many times. Mr. As Beast, Mr. Beast, Mr. Beast. Well, he he did the <laughs> one of his videos was he said Logan Paul like a million times. Like that was when he was younger. He was like twelve years old or something like that. So he just sat in front of his cameras like Logan Paul, Logan Paul, Logan Paul, Logan Paul, Logan Paul, and he did that until he got to like a million or something like that. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I don't have that kind of time. No, <laughs> neither do I. <laughs>